Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast. This is episode 3-272. Today we have a great talk with Dave Riddle, one of the best current ultra marathoners in the USA. David had won the JFK 50 miler and represented the USA team at the World 100K Championships. He just happened to work in the same office as Jim, our editor, so we hooked up. It took us a while to match schedules with me traveling and David competing at Hood to Coast, but we worked it out and have the conversation that ensued for you. In Section 1, we will do our best to answer the question, how to take that first step out of your comfort zone, and why would you want to anyhow. In Section 2, I'm going to talk about how to take on hills in a race without attacking them. Um, through the cement mixer of racing, that was September. I capped it off last weekend by racing the Harvard 10 miler on Saturday and the Holdenwood Trail 10k on Sunday. Now I have to rebuild and recover through Denver Marathon in a couple of weeks to race Fort Myers in November. Yes, indeed, I ran six races in five weeks from August 31st through last weekend, two of them marathons. If you haven't figured it out yet, when it comes to training and racing, you should probably do what I say and not what I do. Saturday, I was still concerned about my hamstring pull, so I warmed up well and went out slow with the back of the pack for the first couple miles. You should really warm up for races. I go out and jog at least 10 minutes and then I stretch. If you can time it right, you want to go into the starting line warm. This Harvard 10-miler has at least a 1,000 feet of elevation gain. It's got some monster hills, one big one around mile two and another big one right around mile eight. And in the middle miles, it rolls with some shallower ups and downs. After a couple of miles, I felt pretty good, so I started to pick my way up through the pack. And eventually, I came up on the shoulder of a young guy who was racing a decent pace, and I stuck with him. Through the middle miles, we were cruising through some seven-minute miles and seeing some paces in the sixes on the downhills. I knew I couldn't attack the hills with the hamstring pull, so instead I just focused on my form and my turnover, and I literally spun up the hills, like when you drop a bicycle into granny gear. Now, by starting slow and accelerating through the middle and respecting the hills, I was delighted to turn in an average of 7.44 minutes per mile without hurting myself, and I'm very happy with that. It was a beautiful day. It was an excellent race. And the next day, I was just planning to run easy with the club on the next morning, but I got a note that night and it said, hey, some of us are running this trail 10K in the next town over, so I went over and ran that instead. And I wasn't planning on racing, but I got caught up with Bob, who's a couple years older than I am and an enthusiastic trail runner, it was two loops of a 5K course, and Bob went out like a scalded cat with the 5K runners. So I just tucked in a few yards behind him and held on to him, trying really hard not to pull anything. And it was a hilly, wide, soft trail course that reminded me of running on the cross-country courses in prep school when I was a kid, same time of year. It was really pretty. Once more... I managed the hills with turnover and form instead of attacking them, and we finished the 5K loop just around 8-minute miles, and I pulled over to have a cup of water and wait for Bob to come through, and we hooked back up and we went back out for the second loop at a much more leisurely pace. And at one point, an older gentleman passed us, meaning older, about the same age as us, and it turned out he was the winner of our age group. It was a big age group, like 40-plus was the age group, I think. And we didn't know. He was only 100 feet in front of us, so we probably could have caught him pretty easily. Bob kept trying to get me to attack the hills. He'd go into the hills and he'd go, come on, let's go. And I'd tell him, you, go ahead, have fun. I'll catch you on the backside. And it wasn't until the last little rise 
into the finish that I let myself push. And of course, that's when I tweaked the hamstring that I had been judiciously protecting through two days of racing. So that's it. No more racing now. I'm going to recover, build again through Denver and into Fort Myers, see if I can get a good, good, strong cycle in. I talked with Coach uh, and reviewed the plan that I had put together, and we decided that I have definitely been over racing and probably been over training without enough focus. So I'm going to cut back to four days of running a week. And I'm going to put in a spin and two core workouts on the off days. And I'm going to group the workouts to maximize benefit and recovery. So Tuesday tempo, Wednesday zone two recovery. And then I'll move my, what I had been doing on Thursday, I'll move that to Saturday and move my long run to Sunday. So I'll have Saturday tempo, Sunday long uh, to practice running on tired legs. And I put some blog posts up on my site, some stuff that you might be interested in. I'll explain briefly. The first one was how to create a simple spreadsheet-based training plan and then import it into MS Outlook into a calendar so you can see it in a calendar format if you're interested. And the other one, I posted two recipes that people were asking me about. So I posted my volcanic balsamic vinaigrette dressing recipe and my modification of Dirty Girl's Kale Salad. All of this wonderful stuff can be found at runrunlib.com. Now, speaking of recipes, I unpacked my juicer this weekend and did some juicing. This device is a trip. It's like the old Blendtec commercials where they used to blend the baseballs and the cell phones on YouTube. You take your fruits and vegetables and you cram them down the input chute and then there is there is a great rendering and dry pulp shoots out one side and juice dribbles out the other side. You can toss anything in there and it gets juiced. You can throw in a whole beet and with a great thwacking sound you get beet juice. One thing that becomes immediately apparent is that there isn't much juice in some things. Cucumbers and apples, they have lots of juice. Kale leaves, not so much. I made two of the recipes. I made the Mean Green and the Sunset Passion. I have the recipes if anyone wants them. They weren't bad. They were a little hard to get down, not so much because they tasted that bad, but because my brain just couldn't get comfortable and was telling me that they should be yucky. As far as the experience, it takes a lot of produce to produce a small amount of juice. I think I'd rather just eat the produce. The amount of waste produced is staggering. For two cups of juice, I created a couple quarts of brightly colored garden mulch. The high-speed, violent, mechanical rendering of produce is certainly fun, but having to clean out all the little bits and pieces afterwards is a bit of a hassle. One last point. I don't know if this juice is good for you, but if you've got problems with the trains running on time, which I don't, the juice, especially the beet juice, will expedite traffic immediately upon consumption. You can literally hear it working through your GI like Drano through a hair clog. Next week, we'll try ritual bloodletting. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. How to take the first step out of your comfort zone. One small step. When I talk about embracing change and chaos and the transformation of your life, people ask me, but Chris, how do I take that first step? How do I get started? I'm going to talk about that today and why that can be so hard. If you want to change something about yourself, it means moving away from your current state. Sometimes this moving away from the current state is easy because the current state causes you pain and stress. If you have a job that you hate, that gives you no fulfillment, that is populated by people you don't respect, that is a two-hour drive in traffic, well, in that case, there may be enough pain associated with that current state to make it easy for you to take steps to do something else. The majority of the time, there is not this acute pain. There may be some pain, like, gee, I'm a little overweight, I should do something about that, but not, the doctor told me that if I didn't lose 100 pounds, I'd be dead in six months. When there is no acute pain, you are in that place we call the comfort zone. 
And just because you're in the comfort zone doesn't mean you're entirely comfortable. It means you have a routine. This routine is known to you. This routine is associated with less stress and fear. That's why you can't take that first step out of the comfort zone because when you do, you are trading a known, comfortable, low-stress situation for an unknown other situation. You might ask me, but Chris, why would I want to leave my comfortable routine and step into the unknown? Very simply, it is because when you are in your comfort zone, you are not getting the most out of yourself and your life. It takes a dose of positive stress to bring out the best in us. Positive stress is a key element of peak performance. You know this because you can point to times in your life when you really challenge yourself or were challenged by some other or some situation and it drove you to strive, compete, and succeed in ways you didn't think possible. On the other hand, too much stress for too long, that'll burn you out. Humans tend to revert to states and situations of low anxiety. That's why you need to be the captain of your ship and introduce changes that nudge you out of your comfort zone. Unless you do something, you will revert to a routine. It's human nature. You may, in your big brain, know this, but are still afraid to diverge from your comfortable routine into a scary unknown. The magnitude of your fear will be partly determined by your personality type. I have a large adventure need in my personality and would be miserable trapped in a cubicle. So it is easier for me to take risks. I have to balance the trade-off of my adventure drive with my need to be secure. We all have to balance these competing needs in our personalities. Your need for security may be much bigger than your need for adventure, and it's perfectly okay for you. When you are trying to decide how to step out of your comfort zone, you have to understand your personality drivers so you can rationally balance the trade-offs between risk and security that your actions will require. Returning to our original question, how do you take that first step out of your comfort zone? After you have digested the rational big brain imperatives for change we just reviewed, you can look for small steps out of your comfort zone. Giant leaps out of your comfort zone are scary. Find a small step that you can make in the direction of your ultimate change. Maybe you sit down and write up what your perfect job would be. Maybe you search for companies within a 20-mile radius of your house on LinkedIn. Maybe you take just one sugar in your coffee instead of two or three. Maybe you start with one push-up or a five-minute walk in the fresh air at lunch. Take some small steps in the direction you want and see if you can stick to them for a month or so. Don't beat yourself up for not making big changes out of your comfort zone. Instead, find a way to celebrate these small changes to reinforce them. The benefit of the small step strategy is that it makes you build up your change muscle incrementally. With each change, each step outside the boundaries of your routine makes the next step easier. You can learn how to make the change itself a habit, and it becomes one of your life skills. Now, the negative to this approach is that the changes may not be all that impactful until they pile up. The pace of change may not have enough magnitude to outrun the inertia of your routine and your comfort zone. Another strategy might be to stop thinking about it and just do it. Some people do better with taking leaps into the unknown to jumpstart their changes. This is the burn the canoes philosophy. Sun Tzu said, when generals want their troops to fight with urgency, they put their backs up against a river and burn the boats and the cooking pots. Smash the cooking pots. So that way, the only way out is forward. This is a rather precipitous strategy. And I think if you were the type of person to leap into the unknown, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. But you can isolate select areas of your life and make leaps in those areas. These shocks to the system can be unpredictable in the initial outcome, but one thing is for sure, there will be change. 
and you will be out of your comfort zone. Why leave the comfort zone? It is peaceful, routine, and stress-free. Why give that up to tilt at windmills and chase water spouts? Because you will never know how good you can be, how much you can achieve, until you break the terracotta mold that holds you in your routine. By not braving the change, you are sacrificing an infinity of potential futures and adventures and relationships. You are sacrificing the gift. However you decide to step out of your comfort zone, once you do it, it never stops. Once you break the bottle, your tendency, because you are human, will be to fall back into routine and comfort. For long-term success, long-term achievement, long-term fulfillment, you have to reinvent yourself as part of your habit and skill. To reinvent yourself, you have to break your old self. And that's the innovator's dilemma. And if you're terrified by this discussion, I would suggest that maybe you need to first spend some time on self-discovery. One of the only ways to truly confidently navigate continuous change, to be comfortable with the innate chaos in life, is to be comfortable with yourself. Once you figure out what is important to you, it's easy to align change and get comfortable with stepping out of your comfort zone. Because no matter where you go or what you change, your core self-value will be there as your anchor. Alas, that's a different topic. Cheers. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. Hello, David. And we have been uh, trying to uh, connect for what, like two months? Yeah, at least. I've had... I've had this crazy spate of travel, and you've been traveling, too. Yeah, we're crisscrossing paths all the time. Glad we finally uh, hooked up here. Yeah. yeah. You know, we probably passed each other in an airport somewhere. Probably. We could have we just talked talk there. Why don't you give us the, the 200 words or less on, on who you are and, and what you're doing in the in the running world? Well, um, I'm David Riddle. I'm an ultra runner, I guess, is my my specialty now. I uh, started running almost 20 years ago back in the seventh grade and ran middle school and high school and walked on in college. And I wasn't all that great in college, uh, but I've just continued to, to love it and continued to run and ran a few marathons after college and then started hitting the trails and the, the really long ultra stuff and have continued to have success racing and still still love it and that's what I'm doing now that's where I am today so had a chance so what, the US so on the ultra team so pretty exciting you're on the U, you're on the US ultra team right so you said yeah the US uh US 100k team the last two years and then I, I was supposed to be on it this year and the race uh, ended up getting canceled um due to a series of misfortunes so um that's a little sad but uh yeah that's where we are Oh, so you know the another guy I talked to who was um, spacing on his name. He's the 50K American record holder. Um, Josh Cox? No, not Josh. The the trail. I think he might be the trail 50K or the trail 100K. Um, Max King is also really good. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyhow, but yeah, so you stepped up to the ultra distance and you found out that you were sort of uh, in the elite now. That's got to be kind of cool. Yeah, I I, mean, you, I was not continue? nationally competitive at in in college at all, and and just started running trails. I think it's a combination of trails and going farther than a marathon that just seems to really work for me and my ability somehow. So, have you gotten faster, or is it just that the distance is bringing people back to you? Raw speed, I haven't gotten faster. I don't think I've slowed down a whole lot. Um, I mean, my five k may be a little slower than than it was in college, but not tremendously. But I've just continued to work and continue to become more efficient, and so I can run a lot longer distance at a relatively fast pace than than most other people can. But I think it's really been uh, a lot of years of hard work and and, uh, almost completely injury-free over that course that's allowed me to do that. Yeah, that makes a big difference, staying, staying on your feet and not injured. So what what kind of pace does uh, the top three in a in a national nationally ranked hundred k trail race? 
Yeah, what my um, like a seven uh, minute mile, six. Uh, six six thirty for sixty two miles at uh, the World One Hundred K got me fifth in the world. And uh, <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. A six thirty for a hundred K, and that's probably not a flat course, right? You're not running around a, a four hundred meter yeah. oval. Actually, it is. It is. Uh, it was a twenty K, almost flat road course uh, loop. So they the the World Hundred K is very very structured, very. Um, they try to make it, even though it's in different locations every year, it's very similar. So it is relatively flat and road. Um, there are a lot of trail races I do, but this this one in particular is very standardized. So it is a, usually a flat road course, a, a loop type course. Yeah, so that's that's pretty amazing that to be uh, to mo- be moving that uh, that well. And like you said, it's it's not about speed; it's about efficiency. So what did you do? You know, what have you done in your training over the last couple decades to get that efficient? Because really what you're trying to do is you're trying to find that knife's edge between speed and, you know, power consumption, right? Yeah. Um, get better at that? I mean, at at the most basic level, it's just running a lot at the pace you, you want to race at, basically. I mean, you need to work a little bit faster and improve your efficiency and your leg speed at, at some of the faster paces to make it more comfortable at race pace. And then you have to do a lot of even slower work um, just to build your aerobic capacity. And one of the key things I've learned over the past few years is learning to, is training your body to use fat as your primary fuel source. You just don't have enough uh, carbohydrate reserves that if you run too fast, you will burn through those carb reserves and you will bonk. And that's one big thing about ultra running is you have to really train your body to to stay on the fat side of the energy consumption and ride that line and then still consume some carbohydrates through gels or drinks or stuff that you can uh, burn burn a combination of, of fat and, and the carbohydrates that you're taking in. Right. People talk about hitting the wall in a marathon, you know, which is somewhere in the 20-mile mark range. You know, it's when mm-hmm. all the glycogen gets out of your muscles and you run out of fuel to burn. But in an ultra, it's it's like 40 times worse because when you hit the wall, you're out of fuel. Your your body has ceased to be able to process it, the, whether well, it's you, carbohydrates ide- or, or fat. Ideally, you shouldn't ever get that bad. If you're if you're properly trained, you go at the proper pace, and your your nutrition is is working for you, you shouldn't ever hit that. The key is is it is it to burn fat. You you have plenty of fat stores in your body. Even someone really thin has has like seventy thousand calories of fat stores in their body. But you have to have a little bit of carbohydrate to burn that fat that you have. And so if you run out of carbohydrate, yeah, you you balk and it's really hard to recover from that. You can recover, but in an ultra, it's really hard mentally to get yourself back on track once you've hit that wall. So the goal is never to find that wall. I mean, you you do hit various levels of, uh, you know, hard hard times in a race like that, but you don't want to ever go completely out of uh, out of energy. So what do you do to train for that? I mean, besides putting in the miles, do you do stuff like, you know, roll out of bed, don't eat anything, and go do a, a long training run at race pace? Uh, I usually eat a little something. Um, I do um, fast finish, like progression runs, um, back-to-back long runs on the weekend. So a typical weekend, if I'm training for a road, 100K would be like, say, 20 easy on Saturday and then 24, 25 on Sunday, trying to get progressively faster and finish close to to marathon pace at the end and, and have a pretty good average for that 24 miles. It's basically marathon training on steroids, just with longer distances and. and yeah, basically. Um, I, I don't do, you know, I don't do nearly as much marathon pace stuff. I do some, some interval like threshold intervals, uh, faster than marathon pace, but not a whole lot. I use 50k races as training runs a lot of times, just because I don't typically don't go past 25 miles in solo unsupported training runs, but I'll use 50k's as as uh, training runs because usually they're supported and have aid stations and I can practice nutrition and have some company and don't get so bored. Right, and then you can do a fast finish on those, and that's a good a good race exactly. approximation. Yep. And it's only half the distance. 
So that's interesting. Now, the other thing I notice is that a lot of the marathoners, the near-elite marathon guys, are moving up into the the altars. And the altars are starting, you know, back in the day when people ran marathons, it was really an endurance race where, you know, it was whoever made it to the end without bonk and won. And now they're almost like 10Ks. The Kenyans just go out and run them all out the whole way. And it seems like some of that is moving up into the ultra distance now, too. Like I see um, the, who's the guy, the the Hanson's guy that I talked to? Uh, uh, Sage Kennedy. Yeah, Sage. He He's moved yeah. up, and he's doing real well at your distance. He was a top 20 marathon guy, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Kenyan. So do you think that's going to keep, keep happening at the 50K and the 100K distance? Yeah, I, I do. What you said is absolutely true. I mean, to be a top-level marathoner now, you have to be a sub-four-miler. Um, and so you, you you have to have some leg speed if you want to be a sub-210 marathoner and, and compete at the top level. So, yeah, I think we're going to continue to see the 215 kind of marathon guys come out just out of curiosity. And as the sport grows and there gets to be more, more sponsorship, they're going to come and um, come run on the trails and out in the mountains and, and enjoy that and get a little, little help from the companies that are trying to tap that new uh, new revenue source and that new market. And they're going to keep coming out and the sport's going to keep growing and we're going to continue to see course records drop and the speed just keep coming. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I suppose it's a good thing, right? It's uh, it's. Uh, I think so. I mean, the, the only issue is is that on the trails you're, you're naturally constrained by logistics. So- we were talking before about Hood to Coast. You just raced Hood to Coast. Yep. Tell, tell us about that race because I've always been fascinated with that race, and I've got no personal experience with it. It's sort of like, you know, comrades. It's one of those races I've been hearing about for 40, 50 years that uh, has the, a lot of legend to it. Yeah, so it's um, a relay race from the top of Mount Hood to the, the coast of Oregon, and that's about 200 miles, and you get a, 12, a team of 12 people together. And you pile into two vans or SUVs or something, and then you uh, alternate taking turns running down the mountain to the coast. And each each person on the team runs three times. This year, I started off and did the first leg, and it was about five and a half miles, and it dropped 2,000 feet straight off the mountain. Wow. Pretty steep. Yeah, it is very steep. Um, I'd never done that leg. It's notoriously hard because it kills your quads. Um, yeah but I wanted to, to try it uh, this year and see how it was. But, you know, I still had two more two more runs to do after that, so you have to you have to save a little. Yeah, it's tough because, again, we go back to leg speed, right, because you can't really fight it. You still mess up your legs if you try to fight it, so you just sort of got to fly to keep your legs yeah, open. Yeah, it's a, a very, very fine line there. You have to kind of let, let gravity take you but uh, stay in control. Yeah, I was running last weekend with uh, in a marathon, chatting with a lady who was on one of the winning, uh, I think the winning women's masters team out there. Um, and she was uh, running this marathon out in Erie with me. She was doing that as a training run. So how did you guys end up doing? Our team, oh, man, what were we? I think we were 11th overall. We did pretty well. We were second in our, I know we were second in our, category uh the corporate mixed team team from nike beat us so i guess i guess if someone's going to beat you you want somebody sponsored by nike to beat you but uh, i think we did pretty well we had some some past ladies this year so that was good yeah so what what are the other races that you like on your on your calendar what does your calendar look like in the year i mean if you're doing this kind of distance at this kind of effort you can't be spinning up one every weekend or kenya is it a plateau sort of thing I don't believe you can race well every weekend, and I think about once a month is about all you can do for uh, an ultra. And even then, you can't do a 100-miler every month. But there are some guys in the ultra community that are running well almost once a month, but I don't think they're really getting everything out of themselves. So I've got a 50K and a 50-mile in October, and neither of them are, are... uh, complete focus races. I want to do well at them, but they're kind of pr- part of the um, the plan. And then in December, I'm running the North Face Endurance Challenge 50 Mile Championship in uh, San Francisco, and it's kind of the de facto 
50 mile trail national championship right now it's got a really really strong field so that's what i'm aiming for the first weekend in december i think but i mean some of this when you get to these distances some of it is is plateau training right you're always logging a lot of miles and it's yeah. not it's not as much wave training like you do for a for a shorter race you know, where you you do a lot of intense stuff, some base building, and try to peak at a certain time. You've got to keep well, that. I I still periodize my training. It's it's a little more. I mean, I I'm running a constant level of high miles, but I still go back to kind of a base training. I work on my speed. I do strength for a certain time, and I do try to. Um, I definitely taper and try to peak for races. So it, it's there is some periodization, but it's not. You know, maybe not like a 5K and 10K. Hmm, that's interesting. So, so when you're you're out doing this, what what else is unique about the the longer distances for you? When because you got to race them hard, you know that I can you know the stuff that when I'm racing a marathon that I have to think about that's different than when I'm racing you know just going out and running a, a 20 mile trail race or I mean a 20 mile long run or a trail run. You know, the intensity means you have to think about more stuff, like you have to be much more exact on your nutrition, on your hydration, on simple stuff like uh, foot care and and uh, blistering and chafing. You know, all that stuff becomes so much more important when you crank up the intensity. So it must be even more so when you're doing it, you know, over 100K. Yeah, all those things become really important. I'd say, fortunately, I've kind of got the foot care and the chafing. All those issues are kind of dialed in. When you're when you're running 20, 24-mile back-to-back long runs and 100-mile weeks, you, you kind of you know build up resistance to things like blisters on your feet, and you also figure out socks and shoes and chafing and what you have to, to cover up or put body glide on to prevent that from happening. I'd say nutrition is the thing that I still struggle with the most. You just, you have to, that has to be dead on or you're not going to perform your best. You really got to pay attention to pace at the beginning. You know, if you go out just a few seconds a mile too fast, then uh, it could it could have um, really bad uh, impact on your race at the end because uh, an ultra 50 mile, 100 mile is so long that if you, you mess it up early, you've got plenty of time to crash and burn. Yeah, it gets gets miserable. So what do you do? Do you tough it out and hope that you recover? You know, because there is, since it's such a long race, you do have an opportunity to recover, even if it takes a half an hour, you know, to get get your body spun back up. Oh, yeah, in, that in a 100 miles, it's more like three hours. <laughs> yeah, so 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 you uh, you try to tough it out until you get your uh, get your race legs back and you get your uh, your nutrition back. Yeah, it depends on the race. I mean, if you're really trying to compete at the top and you know you're not having your best day and you think you could be hurting something uh, long-term, then I, I say you should should drop out. But there's a big discussion in the sport right now whether uh, DNFs are, are a good thing or a bad thing or if you should or shouldn't do that. Um, I personally think that you, you should try not to if at all possible, but if, if you really need to, um, I think... Uh, you could end up hurting yourself more, and sometimes it's just not worth finishing if you screwed up enough. Yeah, because if you're not running r- right, I mean, if you if you if you've changed your mechanics and and your pacing strategy radically, you you're going to be really beat up after that race. I mean, when I do exactly. that, I there's stuff that hurts that shouldn't hurt because you never run that way in training, right? That's true. Yeah, so it really it messes up your recovery as well. I think so. So yeah. uh yeah, yeah, that's that's cool. So what what about this uh what else about this have you learned? Uh you know, what are, what are some of the the your favorite things that you've learned over the last few years doing this? What are your your you know, your top 3 lessons, life lessons from this? Mm. Uh let's see. I think probably the the biggest one and I think the reason that I I have continued to pursue this sport competitively well after college is that I'm constantly amazed by what the human body can do and what it can adapt to if you just keep training it and keep consistently 
stressing the body and letting it recover. And I think that's just what fascinates me is that I just keep improving and do things that 10 years ago were just inconceivable, that I just had no clue that my body was capable of doing it. And that's really what, what I find fascinating about this sport and why I keep doing it. So I think that's the biggest biggest lesson to me is, is what you can accomplish if you just stay after something and really work hard at it. And does that carry over into uh, into real life? Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> sometimes in running, it interferes with my real life. Um, but because uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm so passionate about running and and giving just about everything I've got to to be successful in running. If I were willing to to do that in a job or or something else, then I absolutely think it would carry over. I mean, I work hard at work, I have a good job, and I enjoy it. But I'm not sure that it's it's my passion right now, like like running is. Right, but it gives you a different perspective when you say, you know, I've done this, so the stuff that you guys are throwing at me really isn't, it doesn't scare me, right? Yeah, that's, that's true. It, and running actually it brings balance, I think, to, to work and my, my life in some ways because uh, some people just get caught up in work and go overboard, and I have running to always kind of keep me balanced there. But it's really been amazing the people at work who um, see what I'm doing and realize that I'm, just so focused on the goal and really doing something special and how supportive they are of that, and that's that's been really great. So do you do any international uh, competitions? Yeah, I've raced in Italy and the Netherlands that the World 100K Championships were there. I raced in Wales in, in uh, July for the World Trail Championship. Right. I think I saw some Facebook pictures on that, on the Italy one. Now, is that, again, is that just like a flat uh, road course, or do they let you go run in the Alps? Yeah, the Italy and the Netherlands race were um, the road 100K, so that was the flat loop course uh, style race. The Wales race was a trail, and that had uh, quite a bit of climb in it, so that was off-road, kind of uh, a lot more elevation change, trail stuff, so kind of different races there. Yeah, there's a, there's a famous... Uh, I was just talking to somebody about this. There's a famous uh, trail, uh, Ultra, that, that runs along that route in uh, Scotland and Wales that uh, they talk about over there a lot. It's one of the big ones. All right. So what 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 do you get in the plans for uh, the future here? Uh, well, I've registered for Boston Marathon, actually. I've never run it. Oh. I'm going to try to run it, but I'm, I registered over a week ago, and I'm not actually confirmed yet, so I'm a little nervous about that. I'm not sure what's going on. If there's a mix-up in my qualifying time or what but uh so hopefully i'm running well, boston this spring i would think you would be qualified with uh you know tens or if not twenties of minutes to spare yeah i well i have a 232 marathon in the past year but um i don't know if they're struggling to find it or what the deal is but that's really my only road marathon in the last year is i've only run one road marathon i've got lots of other decays and things like that but no Anything. The only thing they would consider official is this one uh, road marathon that I did. Yeah, I'll be there too. Um, so we'll have to uh, we'll have to say hi. Sure. The yeah, this will be my well my 16th start, my 15th finish. So so good. Looking forward to it. That's interesting. So you got to be careful at Boston. It's uh, it's one of those courses that starts like the the hood to coast starts right the first couple hundred feet straight down everybody's yep. all jacked up and flying yeah so. hopefully i can uh can contain myself and stay under control and i've learned enough in, in ultras to do that but you never know the last marathon i did i found that i kind of forgot how to run a marathon it is it is quite a bit different than than an, even a 50 mile ultra you have to be be smart yeah it's interesting how every distance has its own little nuances isn't it that's that's absolutely true and that's what makes it a bit of an adventure. That's why I like running, is every time you you point your shoes, it's a, it's a new adventure. Never know what's going to happen. Exactly. All right, man, well, I'll let you get back to you uh, to your training. And thanks for finally hooking up with me. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. All right, well, good luck with your uh, race and your training, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon, all right? All right, same to you. Take care. All right, thanks, Dave. Okay, bye. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports.
Running up hills with cadence rather than brute force. Learning to work with what you have. If you asked me about hill racing ten years ago, in my road racing days, I would have told you to attack the hills. In any race, there may be hills, but they are only temporary, and pain is only till you get to the top, so suck it up, Nancy, and power through the top of that hill. Well, I might not have been that direct, but I was a very strong hill runner then, and I would advocate using the hills to your advantage. I would attack the hill, drive myself up the hill with my legs, and recover on the backside. And the form would be to keep your head up, pump your arms, and focus on lifting your knees like you had strings tied to your hands from your hands to your knees, and with each pump of the hand to your ear, that's going to pull one leg up and drive the other one down until the hill was crested, and that's how you attack a hill. If you are young and in shape and not injured and have been training hills, this is still good advice. It's actually great mental training to teach yourself to embrace and celebrate the hills like this instead of being intimidated by them. I see so many people in races deflate before they even get into the hill, they have convinced themselves that hills are hard, and you can see their body language change when they see the hill. And remember, folks, a big part of racing is mental. If you had asked me when I was racing the USATF Mountain Goat Series five years ago, I would have given you probably a slightly different hill running advice. Since those mountains were thousands of feet of elevation gain in a few Ks, I quickly learned that there was no attacking. The hill running advice I would have given then would be to find a pace you can manage and hold it as long as you can, then power walk when you could no longer run. And by alternating between the run and the power walk systematically, you could make the best time up the mountainside in a race. Recently, as you know, I've been recovering from an injury and haven't been able to push as hard as I used to. I've had to find a new and improved way to run hills that fits my current state of entropy and gravity sickness. If I were to attack the hills in a road 10K today, I might survive the first one or two, but my legs would lock up before I get to the top of the third one. I just don't have the fitness to press race pace up hills. I would lose more time trying to get my quad muscles unlocked than I gained with the attacking. On the other hand, these were not mountains in an ultra race. There's no reason or profit in walking every time a hill comes into view. In a road race, the difference between running and walking is significant to your overall pace. In the past three or four years, I have been learning and using heart rate-based training. A big part of this Lydiard-based training is doing a bunch of runs in zone 2 heart rate, low heart rate runs. And when I do these runs, I have to consciously slow my pace and effort down. And when I slow my pace and effort down, I can focus on my mechanics and my form. I use these zone 2 runs to become a much more efficient runner at all paces. When heart rate training, instead of focusing on effort and pace, you focus on form, foot speed, and turnover. You learn to run with a nice, light, quick step and cadence. And over the last few months, I've had some hilly road races, and I've been able to combine the form discipline of zone 2 training with getting up and over hills in my road races. And I think this may be helpful to some of you who don't have the fitness to attack a hill on a race course or are just in, are intimidated by hills in general. The secret sauce here is that I have taught myself how to run hills in a race without wrecking myself, but keep the pace up and not walk. Some trick, huh? Again, probably the most important aspect of this is that I have a proactive strategy that allows me to go into the hill with a positive attitude, unafraid. Don't discount the value of the mental part of racing. Here's how it works. When I go into the hill, instead of attacking, instead of slouching into a trudge, instead of walking, I pull my mechanics into a zone 2 posture and increase my cadence. The rapid turnover puts less stress on my quads and I spin up the hill like riding a bike. My pace still falls off by a few seconds a mile, but I don't end up staggering at the top with dead legs, and I don't have to walk. What exactly do I mean by form? Pull yourself up straight and tall with your shoulders square and high. Hold your hands high and close to your chest. Keep your head up, looking up and ahead. And the next part is very important. 
push your hips forward. If you can only remember one thing, this is it. Push your hips forward like you have a dog leash attached to your belt buckle and it's pulling you. This will force your entire posture to straighten up. With your form upright, gently lean forward from the ankles so that if you weren't moving your feet to catch yourself, you'd fall forward. Not at the waist or the back or the shoulders. Lean just slightly at the ankles. Now, the other most important thing, speed up your cadence. Move your feet quickly so they land lightly on the ground directly under your center of gravity. Touch the ground and pop back up. Almost like riding a bike. You shouldn't be driving the feet or pistoning the legs. Your torso should be quiet, not swaying back and forth or side to side. Keep your upper body upright and quiet. Spin the feet with quick little light steps up the hill. And by shortening my stride and increasing my cadence, I'm able to maintain a reasonable pace without fatiguing my quads and legs during the climb. By holding good, quiet form, I'm able to keep my heart rate and effort level within bounds. When I get to the top, I'm fresh and can quickly recover the handful of seconds I lost by racing those downhills. Nice, huh? So remember, focus on two things. Hips forward, quick cadence. The rest will fall into place. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Well, my friends, that was fun, wasn't it? I am able to get some nice momentum going when I can use a weekly cadence for the show. I like the part when Dave said that even the skinniest person has 70,000 fat calories in them. I must have a billion fat calories in me. If you want to read more about David or interact with him, you can read his blog at riddleruns.blogspot.com or follow him on Twitter at RunDavid1, all one word. I've gotten some great emails from some of you over the last few weeks, and I love to get them. Sometimes I don't know how to respond because it seems that from your end, it takes a great effort for you to break through whatever that barrier is holding you back from talking to me. And I apologize if I seem brusque in my response. One of my habits is to use very few words in my emails, and that's ironic considering how loquacious I am in this avatar. I often kick off kerfuffles in my professional world with people who don't know me with the relative paucity of my responses. I'm not mad at you or anything like that. It's just how I interact on email. So to summarize my points, one, I like hearing from you. Two, if you want something specific from me, feel free to ask. And three, I may respond with, that's pretty cool, bro. I'll check it out to your five paragraph email. It doesn't mean I hate you. It also brings up a point that I will discuss at length in an article in the future. I'll touch on a little bit here, which is that community is really important to a healthy, balanced life. It's as important as mental health and physical health. Part of why we do all this is because we need the community. The online community replaces or at least shores up the physical communities that we've lost a little bit to the faceless suburbia in our modern times, and I know that. To go along with the necessity of community is the fact that to be part of a community brings with it a responsibility. And it's not a one-way street, and I know that too. And the internet, this podcast, they give me the opportunity to leverage technology to join with my extended community outside of physical space, and I respect that. So shoot me an email. I promise to answer. I think last week or the week before, maybe I was talking about this stressful time of year and how it's full of full of stress triggers that can derail us. And I thought I'd share a couple of my personal relaxation or pseudo-meditation tricks, tactics, the first one I use is basically your standard meditation. I have a mantra. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting cross-legged on the floor staring at a wall or anything. But if I'm in some place where I need to relax, I have a mantra. It's just a series of three nonsense words that I repeat. And I close my eyes and focus on those words and watch those words scroll across the inside of my eyelids. And by focusing on those words, I can quiet the noise in my mind and let it go. And this is one of the ways I can let stress go or fall asleep when I'm restless. 
Another one I use is, and I use this to sleep on airplanes, is I imagine myself on the inside of a sealed glass container, and I am on the inside. The screaming babies and the chatty people are on the outside. It's quiet and peaceful on the inside of my pod. I am happy and peaceful there. I drift off to sleep because I can no longer hear the disturbances on the outside. I don't know if you can use something similar, but it's fun to try. I have been in the office all week working on various things. I've been very productive writing and reviewing content. Next week, I'm going to interview Lauren Fogelman, who is the author of a book about the mental aspects of competing. It's a great chat. As always, if you want to support the show, go to my website, check out one of my books. Thanks a bunch. Have a great week. Ciao. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing. If you're moved by something I say or interested and would like to see if what I wrote is the same thing, You can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao.